0: As we near the end of our sermon series on delighting in our dependence about how to live as the finite creatures that God made us to be, uh, we come today to uh, the importance of learning to practice both groaning and gratitude. And in our passage today, uh, the Lord Jesus explains why that's necessary. Uh, In Matthew uh, 13, beginning in verse 24, we read this, "'Jesus presented another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while the people were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and left. When the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared.'" The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did these weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked him. No. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At the harvest time, I will tell the reapers... Gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. Here, Jesus is explaining something all of us already know. And it's this, there's something wrong here. Right? There is something wrong with the way life is going here on earth. Things aren't happening that should be happening and things are happening that shouldn't be happening, whether it's natural calamities like cancer or human calamities like murder, there are weeds among the wheat of our lives. So why would God allow that? After all, if God is both all-powerful and perfectly loving, shouldn't He be intervening more often? to stop these tragedies from taking place? Shouldn't He protect us? Jesus answers that question directly a few verses later. In verse 36, we read, Then He left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples approached Him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. He replied, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. What Jesus is explaining here is that the field of our lives are full of weeds because human beings are born into a cosmic conflict between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of darkness, where God's children in the kingdom of heaven grow up right beside the children of the evil one who from the beginning of human history has sought to undermine God's good intent, both for humanity and for the creation he designed us to rule over. This fact that God is temporarily tolerating evil necessitates groaning. Romans eight eighteen through 23 Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed." For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole world has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the firstfruits, we also groan within ourselves." Eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. But why would God do that? Why would God allow human evil to come into existence and tolerate it instead of intervening immediately? Well, Jesus explains why in verse 27. Look again at the beginning of this parable. The landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he told them. So do you want us to go and pull them up? The servants asked, No. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles to burn them, but collect the wheat in my barn. Jesus is explaining that God is being patient with evil because he loves wheat more than he hates weeds. Or to put that another way, God loves you more than he hates your neighbor's sin. Now, to be clear, God does hate sin. Romans 12, 9 says, Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. In order for God to be love personified, there are things that he has to hate, things like cancer or sex trafficking are all forms of political oppression. And there will be a day... Jesus explains when God's patience with weeds comes to an end, and the Son of Man appears to judge all the earth, holding everyone accountable for every thought, word, and deed, and executing a just judgment on them. He called this the end of the age. He describes it this way, verse 37 and following. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed, these are the children of the kingdom." The weeds are the children of the evil one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. Therefore, just as weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather from His kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. Now, this may be a shock to your system because there's not a lot of preaching about hell and the judgment anymore in the West. But the truth is that it's not possible for us to pursue nonviolence unless this is true. You can only choose to love your enemy and to pray for those who persecute you and turn your cheek to them if there is, in fact, a God who judges justly. Miroslav Volf made this very clear in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, after he was writing Post-Serbian-Croatian War, and he said this, My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, My thesis will be unpopular with man in the West. But imagine speaking to people as I have whose cities and villages have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them, we should not retaliate? Why not? I say the only means of prohibiting violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Jesus makes it clear that there will be a day when God does that. But that day is not today. He's not going to do it through any earthly ruler. Today, we're in the age of God's patience. 2 Peter 3 3 through 9, Peter speaks to this. He says, First of all, you must understand that in these last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They'll say, Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By that same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What the Apostle Peter is explaining is that God's promise that He made to Noah after the flood, that which theologians call the Noahic Covenant is the reason that God is restraining himself. Because of that promise that he made to Noah, God allows his children and the children of the evil one to grow up side by side and preserves creation by extending all of them common grace. And the reason he does that is he extends common grace to all so that he can extend special grace to those he intends to adopt out of the family of the evil one and into the family of God. This is the God who can turn weeds into wheat. Common grace exists so that special grace can finish its work. So what's common grace? Well, common grace is the grace that God uses to preserve creation by restraining humans' ability to do all the evil that we're actually capable of. That He kind of puts a governor or a limiter on our ability to destroy the planet and to destroy each other while he waits for his adopted children to be born, to hear the good news of the gospel to believe and to be adopted into his household, what the Bible calls the household of faith. Until that time, he scatters his gifts both on those who know him and those who don't. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 5 when he says, you've heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain." on the righteous and the unrighteous. And because of his patience and because of his common grace, you and I are born into a life that is aptly described by Frederick Biegner in the quote that we've put on the front of your bulletin. When he says this, the grace of God means something like, here is your life. You might never have been, but you are because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here is the world, Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Nothing can ever separate us. It's for you I created the universe. I love you. There's only one catch. Like any other gift, the gift of grace can be yours only if you reach out and take it. Maybe being able to reach out and take it is a gift too. So how do we do that? How do we receive the gift of grace that God is giving us in our life, in our existence, in the fact that we're here instead of not here? Well, Jesus tells us how in the final passage, verse of our passage today, when he says, Therefore, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather from His kingdom all those who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness, and they will throw them in the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen." Notice what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is claiming to be the one called the Son of Man by the prophet Daniel. Roughly 550 years before Jesus was born, while in Babylon, a young man named Daniel started receiving visions from God that saved not only his life but the lives of the people of God. He describes probably the most important of those visions in Daniel 7. 13, and 14, where he says this, "'I continued watching in the night visions, "'and suddenly one, like a son of man, "'was coming with the clouds of heaven. "'He approached the Ancient of Days "'and was escorted before him. "'He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom "'so that those of every people, nation, and language "'should serve him. "'His dominion was an everlasting dominion "'that will not pass away, and his kingdom...' is one that will not be destroyed. So what Jesus is saying in our passage today is that I am Him. I am the King of creation, the judge of all the earth. And here He is warning us that there will be a day when common grace ends. When he actually calls forth the legion of angels, he refused to summon to pull him off of the cross and he allows them to reap the earth and rid it of sickness and sorrow and sin by, re- by removing all of those who refuse to listen to him. So how then does this king, how then does this judge instruct us to live during this common age of common grace, right? The period of time that we're in. Well, he wants us to groan over weeds while being grateful for wheat. Romans 12, 9 through 15... Let love be without hypocrisy, detest evil, cling to what is good, love each other deeply as brothers and sisters, take the lead in honoring one another. Do not lack in diligence and zeal, be fervent in the Spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in affliction, be persistent in prayer." Share with the saints in their needs. Pursue hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You see, this coming king of all creation wants us to groan and to be grateful. Dr. Caput puts it this way in the final chapter of his book that we're basing this sermon series on. He says... Despite pressures from both outside and within the church, lament and thanksgiving are not in a contest. The Bible calls for both. Don't pick between Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. Believers are allowed to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in their distress? And at the same time, confidently declare, the Lord is my shepherd. These expressions are not tied to good and bad times, but to the one God who is present in both. We gain confidence in God's kindness and provision when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If we try to choose one and not both, we risk turning our laments into hopeless despair or reducing divine promises to shallow cliches. When we engage in both lament and gratitude, then each becomes stronger and truer. So how do we do that? How do we engage in both lament and gratitude so that both become stronger and truer? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us how in 1 Timothy 1:15 through 15-17, when he says this, "'This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance.'" Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Do you see what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying, I was a weed, I was the king of weeds. I was on the way to murder Christians. When the resurrected Lord of glory, the only king, appeared to me, and instead of striking me down as he should have, he gave me mercy, and he called me not only to be a follower, but to be an apostle. Someone who gets to actually write the word of God. And why did he do that? So that all of you would know he is unlimitingly patient with you weeds. His mercies are new every morning. And so if you want to learn how to groan and be grateful, what you need to understand is that the line of human sinfulness doesn't run between us and them. It runs through every human heart. And Jesus came to turn weeds into wheat. That's why he came. And when you're grateful that you are one of those people, one of the people who should be burned but instead are adopted, you can both groan while being grateful, no matter how dark and difficult your days get. The best example I've seen of this is in the blog post, God is on the bathroom floor by Nightbird. I mentioned it last week, and I want to read an excerpt from it this week. If you have time, you should read the whole thing. Um, She passed away um, after appearing on one of the uh, shows, you know, like America's Got Talent. I forget which one it was, but she was an incredible singer, but she she had cancer, and it was terminal when she basically won the show. Um, And this is what she said uh, in her blog. I've had cancer three times now, and I have barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet God, that he will say I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he'll say I just never learned the lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. I'm God's downstairs neighbor, banging on the ceiling with a broomstick. I show up at his door every day, sometimes with songs, sometimes with curses, sometimes apologies, gifts, questions, demands. Sometimes I use my key under the mat to let myself in. Other times I sulk outside until he opens the door to me himself. I've called him a cheat and a liar, and I meant it. I've told him I wanted to die and I'm in it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall on the ground as I reach out for Him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise, sunset. Call me bitter if you want to, that's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened, but count me also among the friends of God. For I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout. I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write me one. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us. And I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. Call me cursed. Call me lost, call me scorned, but that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. I'm the one whose belly is filled with loaves of mercy that were hidden for me, even on days when I'm not so sick. Sometimes I go lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy, I can't really explain it, but God is in there even now. I've heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And it's true. If you can't see Him, look lower. God is on the bathroom floor. Earlier we heard Miroslav Volf say that if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. With which I agree. I also agree with something that John Stott said, which sounds to be the opposite. He said, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? Which brings us to this table because the amazing truth of the gospel, the thing that we could never imagine, is that the judge of all the earth first came to earth to endure the judgment due our sins himself so that he could be both just and the justifier of his people. Because on the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread and he said, this is my body which is broken for you, take of it each of you. And in a similar manner, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for the remission of sins. Drink of it, each of you. You see, Jesus didn't call down the legion of angels that he could have on the cross because the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so that he could turn weeds into wheat. And if you are such a person... If you with Paul are ready to say, hey, I'm the problem. My selfishness is the main problem in all my relationships, including my relationship with God. I really need someone to deliver me from me. Then this table is for you. This is where weeds come to be made into wheat. Now, if that's not you, If you um, are here today, but you are not yet listening to Jesus, if you are not receiving the Son of Man as He is giving Himself to you, we are glad you're here, but we encourage you to stay seated. And we've included some prayers that you may want to pray on the back of your bulletin. Because this table comes with a warning. Don't come hypocritically. Don't have that hypocritical love Paul was warning us about in Romans 12, because if you come hypocritically, you evoke the judgment of the Son of Man. And so he warned you, don't fake it like Judas did when he shared bread with Jesus on the table. Instead, stay seated and ask God for a new heart. It's our practice here at Hope to take the elements and take them back to the seats and have them together. The inner rings are real wine, And the outer ring is grape juice. If you need a gluten-free option, they're available to you in these little packets here on the edge of the table. As I pray, the officers will come forward and then you may come forward as you feel led. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning because of your great faithfulness to us. We thank you, Lord, that you are so patient and that... Because of your great patience and mercy, you invite us to feed upon you. We ask now, Lord, that you give us the faith to feed upon you as you set these elements apart from their ordinary use to their holy use. We ask this in your name. Amen.